I want to give a fairly simple study. And this is actually something that uh, has simply been on my mind because it's something that's come up in some recent conversations that I've had with individuals. I do think it's helpful and important sometimes to understand some of the false doctrines that are so prevalent, some of the false ideas that we're almost surely going to run into as we talk with friends and neighbors and other religious people. And so tonight I want to talk about an aspect that you've probably run into, or if not, if you have very many religious discussions with people, you probably will. And so I just want to give you some thoughts and some ways to think through this that hopefully will help you if that's the situation. Now we're going to start, we're not going to talk about all of this, but we're going to start with this acronym. You probably are well aware of it, or maybe you aren't, but the acronym TULIP stands for the five tenets of Calvinism. Calvinism is named after, of course, John Calvin. He was one of the reformers. Um, now, he was a brilliant man. He had a lot of good things to say, but in his protestation against the Catholic Church, along with others like Martin Luther and other individuals in that same era, he protested against the Catholic Church, reformed many ideas, and essentially created a new theology that has been the mainline theology for the past 400-some years of the group that is known as Protestants or Protestant Evangelicals. Which, by the way, this is a study in and of itself, or at least a side point, we are not Protestants. We are not a part of that group. There may be things that we share in common with some people that call themselves Protestants, but Protestants are people that broke away from the Catholic Church. We did not break away from the Catholic Church. We seek to restore New Testament Christianity. So just to put that out there, we are not Protestants. But many Protestants are Calvinists, and there's five key tenets of Calvinism, and they can be summed up or they can be easily memorized with this mnemonic device of thinking of TULIP. Those letters stand for, first of all, uh, total depravity or total hereditary depravity. That may also sometimes be known as original sin. This is the concept that after Adam and Eve sinned, since then, Every human being has been born a sinner. That sin is somehow passed on from one person to another, even genetically. And so mankind is hopelessly lost. Mankind is absolutely and totally depraved. That he has a nature that it is impossible for man to do the will of God because he is totally and completely depraved. That's the idea there. By the way, we're only going to be focusing on one of these tonight that I'll get to in a, section, in, in a, in a moment. Um, but, so I'm just going to give an overview of these. Uh, you can study some of these further on your own. Um, but total hereditary depravity. This is really where Calvinism starts. We are born sinners. We are hopelessly in sin unless God does something to pull us out of sin because we are absolutely depraved. The U stands for unconditional election. The more common idea, or probably what you've heard, is predestination. This idea is that even before the world began, God selected, He elected individuals. Now, the Bible does talk about predestination. Again, this is not the idea we're going to focus on tonight, but the Bible does teach about predestination, but it does not teach individual predestination. It teaches a group predestination. Ephesians chapter 1 is one of the key passages that is used to talk about predestination and that is misinterpreted to apply to individuals, saying that basically in this crowd tonight, it would be like saying, okay, before the world began, 
God knew that every one of us would exist. He created every one of us. But He chose Marilyn and James and Linda and David and Marvin. And He elected that they would be saved. He chose them to be saved. And He's going to work to make sure that they are saved. But everybody else He did not choose. They are not the elect. They are going to remain hopelessly lost because they are depraved and they weren't chosen by God. Unconditional election or predestination. Then the L stands for limited atonement. This is, by the way, where we're going to focus tonight. Limited atonement has to do with the sacrifice of Jesus. It teaches that Jesus' sacrifice essentially was not for the whole world. We'll define this further in a moment. But that Jesus' sacrifice, the atonement, was only for the elect. Now, this is the one we're going to talk about tonight. This is kind of the hinge point. It rests upon the others, and the others kind of rest upon it. And this is where we're going to talk, but for now we'll leave L. I is for irresistible grace. This is the idea I mentioned a moment ago that those five individuals, or however many that God chose, He would make sure that they are saved. The teaching is that those who are the elect, those who are chosen by God, He is going to save them. There are going to be circumstances. There are going to, there's going to be a miraculous operation upon the heart by the Holy Spirit, some will say. They will be saved. They will hear the gospel. They will obey it. They will be empowered to obey it. And that's the only re- way they overcome their depravity, is they are pulled by God's grace, and that grace is irresistible. It's something that they will not know, but they will respond to. And they have no choice not to respond to it. They absolutely will respond to it. That's why it's irresistible. And then P is for the perseverance of the saints. This is more commonly known as once saved, always saved. This goes into the idea of the irresistible grace. Because there is an elect group that Jesus died for, that God has chosen, it is irresistible. They must respond to the gospel. They must respond to the God's call and then he will not allow them to fall. Now, there may be people that teach it, and when I was younger, I kind of thought, you know, this idea of once saved, always saved, was you, will, you are saved, whatever that means to any group, and then you can do whatever you want, but you're, you're saved. That's not really the way that it's taught. Most people would say that if you obey the gospel or you're saved, and then you go out and just live a reprobate life, all that proves is you weren't saved in the first place, is how they will typically say it. But what they will say instead is, you will live a holy life, you will do good works, you'll do all those things because God has empowered you and God is making and helping you do those things and He will not let you fall. Now, this is, these are the tenets of Calvinism. These are the foundation and very brief explanations. As you talk with people, um, you'll have friends that believe at least some of this and even amongst Calvinists, there's a lot of disagreement. There are people that will call themselves two-point or three-point or five-point Calvinists. That means basically they agree with two or three or all of these ideas. So there's, there's degrees out there. There's differences that you'll encounter. But at some point, if you have conversations with other people about the Bible and about theology and doctrine, you're going to run across some of these. And like I said, tonight, and it would do well for us to study all of these, but tonight we're just going to have a simple study on one of them, and that is this middle one, this idea of limited atonement. And that may sound strange. By the way, I think all five of these are false. All five of these are unscriptural. They are not correct, and I think that they can be refuted 
with the proper interpretation of Scripture. But we're going to focus on this one. And this may seem like a strange one even as we go through it tonight. There may be parts that sounds like we're saying the same thing as other people, just maybe in slightly different ways. And there may be times that that's even the case. But I think it's very important that we say things the way the Bible says it and that we view things the way the Bible shows it to us and reveals it to us. We should think about God the way God has revealed himself to us. And so this one, in my mind, is a little bit more of a mental aspect, but this one has an impact on all of the others, and it rests upon all of the others. And if this, key, if this middle concept here can be clearly shown to be anti-biblical, to not be what the Bible actually says, then it certainly throws the rest of these ideas into question as well. So let's talk first a little bit about limited atonement. I, I described it very briefly, but here's a couple of definitions, and I'm sure you can find lots of definitions, but these are two that I just found through a quick internet search uh, from people that seem to be pro-Calvinist trying to define this. And so this is people, this site here I know was one that was, was defending limited atonement, and this is how they define it. Limited atonement simply states that Jesus died on the cross to atone only, and that's not my emphasis, that's an original emphasis, only for the elect. In other words, his sacrifice was not for the world entire, but just enough to cover each and every one of the elect that God called to himself. Now notice the way that one describes it. Jesus' sacrifice was not for the world entire. But Jesus' sacrifice was just enough to cover every person that God called to himself. That's that irresistible grace who is elect. Not for the world. Think, keep that in the back of your mind because that's going to sound very different than some of the scriptures that we'll read later. Here's another definition. Um, I'll admit this one is from Wikipedia, so take that for what it's worth. That's not a real academic source, but I will say this is cited uh, from some specific books. In fact, I think even some of the ones that Calvin himself wrote. Uh, it says that the doctrine states that though the death of Jesus Christ is sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world, so here you see a little different, um, but Jesus Christ is sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. It was the intention of God the Father that the atonement of Christ's death would work itself out only, uh, in only, the elect, thereby leading them without fail to salvation. According to limited atonement, Christ died for the sins of the elect alone, and no atonement was provided for the reprobate. Now, that's kind of a contradictory statement in and of itself, because it says that the blood of Christ was uh, sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world, but God just didn't want it to. God had chosen that it wouldn't cover the whole world. It would only be provided for the elect. Now notice those words, elect. Notice how key that is in these definitions. Christ died to atone only for the elect. Now, here's where we could possibly agree with this statement if we agreed on what the elect was. Jesus' blood will only effectually forgive the elect, but the elect are those who have accepted his invitation and are a part of his church. The elect are not individuals that have been chosen before the world even began against their will, without any knowledge or 
believing on their part beforehand and forced to obey the gospel. The elect is the church. Again, that's a whole study in and of itself, but notice how it focuses on that idea of election. Also, notice how it hinges on this idea because this idea is that Jesus' blood is only for the elect. Many times these people make a very big deal. They'll argue with our position that somehow we make Jesus' uh, sacrifice un- insubstantial. That somehow we're weakening Jesus' sacrifice and the fact that we say he died for people that won't be saved. So they make a very big deal out of that. So every person that died, they think that every person Jesus died to save will be saved. So that leads them without fail. That's that idea of irresistible grace. That idea of God called to himself, irresistible grace. So we see how this idea of limited atonement, it rests upon and is also yet the foundation for these other uh, tenets of Calvinism. So when I was thinking through this, after I'd had some discussions with uh, someone that had really brought this to the forefront of my mind, I was trying to think through, how do you explain this? How do you try and think through this? And I thought through kind of an example in my mind, and I'll admit um, this may not be the best example, but it kind of helps me to think through the logic of this. And so I hope it helps you. Uh, As all examples do, it's not perfect. So bear with me for that. But I want you to imagine, under the scope of limited atonement, well, we'll just, for number's sake, keep it easy. Say there's 100 people, and these people are slaves. They are enslaved. And there's nothing that they can do to break through the gates. There's nothing they can do to free themselves. They're enslaved. Now, they can be freed at the redemption price of $1 trillion per person. Clearly a price that, and you could come up with whatever number you want there. I'm just coming up with a big number. A price that a slave could never hope to pay. A price that's far beyond their reach. But for $1 trillion, a slave could be freed. There's 100 people. So that would take $100 trillion to free all of these people. Now, under the idea of limited atonement, God looks at these slaves, and he chooses 25 of them. In fact, he chose 25 of them from the beginning of the world, and he pays that price. He pays $25 trillion, and he frees these people. And by the way, these people have no choice. They will be drawn into freedom, and we think, well, who wouldn't? a valid question, something to think about. But they will be drawn out. And there's no way, by the way, that they will ever be enslaved again. Now these other people, these other 75 people, there is no hope that they will ever break out of this slavery. Because obviously there's no way that they can do that. And the Redeemer has not chosen to do that for them. Now here's the other question. This goes back to those two definitions. You might have seen that even Calvinists kind of approach this differently. This scenario means one of two things. It means that in our example, God only had $25 trillion and that's all he could save. And so he saved what he could. But he wasn't strong enough or capable enough to save everyone. Does that sound like the God of the Bible? Absolutely not. So what that means 
Because God had a hundred trillion dollars and much, much more and still only chose to spend a portion of his power to save those that he wanted to. And the question becomes, quite fairly, I think, is that an accurate picture of a God of love who created all these individuals, had the ability to save them, and chose not to? And there's nothing they can do about it. Remember that they are completely depraved because of Adam's sin. There's nothing they can do about it. And God gives them no opportunity. That is the doctrine of limited atonement. Now, another way that we can look at Jesus' atonement, and I put this in brackets because I don't think that, I wouldn't go out and say that I, I believe instead in unlimited atonement because that can be twisted. But let's just call it that for now. What do we say instead has happened? Same scenario. 100 slaves. The redemption price is still $1 trillion per person. By the way, it helps to remember that all of these slaves are slaves because they have chosen slavery. They have placed themselves in bondage by rebelling against God. But now they have no way out on their own. And so Jesus is sent. But in this example, one trillion per person, what has God done? He has paid the full amount. He has paid enough so that every single one of these people, he has broken the gate. And all these slaves have to do is walk out. All they have to do is accept his offer of freedom. And what happens in that scenario? Some people choose to walk out the gate, and some people choose to remain in bondage. And that's exactly what has happened. Jesus' blood was not so that one or two people that he chose could be saved out of ten, but so that every person would have the opportunity to be saved. The price has been paid. And it's not that these... Now, in this scenario, because what, what, will be, what you will be accused of if you bring this up is you're saying that you have a role in your salvation. You're saying that your salvation depends upon you. This is another reason, by the way, why they want to go with this. Um, one of the most famous scholars of the past 50 years or so that I, I read about this said the problem with going with something like unlimited atonement instead of limited atonement is it brings into, their, into question their assurance of salvation. That's a big concept for some people. See, they say that we can be assured of salvation. Now, in practical terms, this never works out. You've all seen this. I've seen this. I've seen people who at one denomination or another, they tell you, hey, what, you know, our daughter got baptized last night at eight years old. And you say, oh, okay. So that's because, and, and the reason they baptized her is she had said that she had had this, she, she had been, she had put her trust in the Lord and she'd been saved. So she went through this practice. And then 10 years later come and they say, my daughter was saved last night. And you say, I thought your daughter was already saved. Oh, well, apparently not. She's saved. What happened to assurance of salvation? 
You see, there's no more assurance in the Calvinism system than there is in the biblical system. But they want to say that perseverance of the saints, because I am one of the elect, I know that I'm saved, and I know there's nothing that can take that away from me. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible warns again and again throughout the New Testament epistles that there is a danger of falling from grace. Now, we are assured of salvation if we remain faithful. We know that Satan can't just somehow steal our salvation from us. Other people can't steal our salvation from us. But we have the choice, as foolish as it would be, we have the choice to go from freedom back into bondage. Because the gate has been opened. This is what I believe the Bible actually teaches. Now, which one is correct? Now first, we need to ask a question, and you will be asked this question. If you paint this scenario that I've painted, probably the first question that you'll be asked by someone who really knows their scripture and, and is ready for this, they're going to say, who are you to question God? And they're going to use Paul. And they're going to say, you're the exact person Paul was talking about. Because let's read Romans 9. By the way, Romans 9 has a deeper context, and I hope you'll go home and read Romans 9 more fully. But listen to this. So then he, that is God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. You'll be hit with that passage. And so I encourage you to spend some time in Romans 9 and learn the context, learn the fullness of Paul's argument. See, the point that Paul is making is not about individuals, but it's about groups. It's not just Jew and Gentile. That it's not about salvation that God has used certain people for, but to accomplish the purposes of His will. But be ready for this passage. And I will say this. If this is who God had revealed Himself to be, then we shouldn't question it. If this is who God is, then it's who God is. And my discomfort at it's not going to change anything. My philosophy is not going to change anything. So should we question this? Absolutely. Because this is not who God has revealed himself to be. Let's just spend a few time looking at a few verses. Ezekiel 18 verse 23. God says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God. Now, if it had stopped there, you could maybe say, Well, see, God doesn't take pleasure in condemning all these people He created to hell against their will. But He says, And not rather 
that he should turn from his way and live. What's God saying through Ezekiel? He's saying, I do not desire that anyone should perish. I do not, desire, I do not take some pleasure in the death of the wicked. Now, read Ezekiel. There's some harsh language in Ezekiel. Read Jeremiah and Isaiah. Read the prophets. There's a lot of judgment language. God promises again and again and again His wrath upon disobedient people. And you might read through the prophets and think, man, God is an angry God. And He is angry because His people have rebelled. But bringing punishment upon them or upon Assyria or upon Babylon isn't something that God is sitting in heaven just getting a kick out of, pouring His wrath out on people. He says, it brings me no pleasure to destroy the wicked. I would rather that they repent and turn. Now, not only does this show that God wants people to be saved, the very tenor of this passage is that they have a choice. They have an opportunity to repent. But God is not going to force them to do so. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Remember that first definition we read? Jesus' sacrifice was not for the world entire. That's the doctrine of man that clearly contradicts John. God so loved the world. Now, by the way, they're very aware, most many Calvinists, that you will make this argument. And this is where it gets interesting. The hoops, and I'm not trying to make fun of, but this is how it, the hoops that people will go through to try and tell you that the world here doesn't mean everybody. It doesn't mean the world. It means the elect. And if you just take the passage for what it says, God loved not a few people, not a lot of people, not most people. God so loved the world that He gave Jesus that whoever believes in Him should have eternal life. Now, eternal life is not unconditional. There is a condition. We have to place our faith in the Lord. We have to be faithful to the Lord. And so even though God loved the world, it doesn't say that He gave His only Son so that all the world will be saved. Because He does leave it, He does give us the opportunity to obey, but He doesn't force us to. But His love is not just for some. His love is for all. Or what about 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 through 6? Now, in the, past, in the first two verses, Paul has told Timothy about prayer, and he says, I desire that prayers and thanksgiving and supplications be made for all men. And then in verse 3, he states, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved. One of the, I have literally been told this, all doesn't mean all. Then what does it mean? So it just means all the elect. It's not what it says. The inspired apostle says, God our Savior desires 
all people. And by the way, he's just used this phrase when he said, I desire therefore that prayers and supplications and giving of thanks be made for all people and those who are in authority, especially those who are in authority. Does that mean that we are only supposed to pray for the elect? We are only supposed to pray for other Christians? No. And I know very few, if any, people that say that. And yet then we go just a, two verses later and they say, all does it mean all. Yes, it does. It means all in this context. God desires all people to be saved. He desires all people to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. That does not say that he gave himself and all will be saved. But it does say he gave himself as a ransom for all. Not all the elect. All. And to say that Jesus paid the sacrifice for the sins of every man and woman. But not every man and woman will be saved in no way diminishes the power or the love or the purpose of Jesus and his death. What it does is it shows how rebellious man is. And it also demonstrates why God's wrath will be poured out in the end. Because not only did people rebel against God, people spurned the blood of his son that was shed for them. It was shed for them, even if they rejected the gift of salvation. Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, if you look at the context, you read later, a few weeks ago, we gave, uh, I gave a lesson on this. It shows us that grace trains us in godliness. It trains us how to be the right type of person. This is not saying that it saves everybody, but it has appeared. The grace has appeared for everyone. It has made salvation available and possible for everyone, for all people, not for a few, not for most, for all people. And of course, 2 Peter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now here's another one. They will say the you here that Peter is talking to is Christians. And so God is long-suffering so that the elect will still have opportunity to be saved. That's twisting the passage here. It's clearly in contradiction with what the rest of the verses we've looked at says. I think again the simplest reading is the right one. God does not wish that any should perish. That includes those who have been washed by the blood of Christ but have returned to worldliness and need to return to their Savior in repentance. And that includes the sinner who's never obeyed the gospel and needs to obey the gospel for the first time. God wants all to be saved. He does not wish that any should perish. Now here's the question. If God does not wish that any should perish, then why would he make sure that these people could not be saved? That makes 
no sense with what the Bible says. Now, I do want to emphasize, again, because this is what you may be accused of. I've been accused of this by people that don't listen, that, well, if Jesus' sacrifice is for everybody, then everybody has to be saved. That's universalism. No matter what you do, what you think, you're going to be saved because Jesus' sacrifice was for you. That's not what the Bible teaches, and that's not what I'm saying. That's not what we should teach. We teach that Jesus' sacrifice was for everyone, and it has opened up the way for salvation. And so as we think of atonement, I think perhaps one of the ways to say it is it is an unlimited offering. I don't, that's why I don't like unlimited atonement, because the word atonement means substitution. It, it has the idea that there is an atonement that has taken place. And Jesus does not save those who will not obey him. So it's not that there's unlimited atonement, but there is an unlimited offering of atonement. The gospel call rings out for everyone. But unfortunately, there is limited acceptance. Even though the gates of hell have been broken down, there are those that refuse to escape. That sounds strange. But the devil as a captor is a cunning one. By the way, there's plenty of examples throughout history of people that have gained freedom only to stay with their slave masters. Humans have done it over and over again with other humans. You think some won't do that with Satan? God has made a way with an unlimited offering, but it is conditioned upon our acceptance. And so we'll just end returning to a verse we've already read. It's so simple, so easy, so encouraging for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life those who hold the doctrine of limited atonement as I said will often talk about assurance of salvation but it's such a hopeless message you're either chosen or you're not. There's nothing you can do about it. Even if you want to do something about it, you won't get it right if you're not chosen. You'll be reprobate. There's no hope that you have. And I've tried telling this to individuals before, and sadly, it's often rejected still. And a conversation between me and someone that holds this idea I will finally get to a point where I will say, here's the pictures we're painting. You think that I am lost. I think there's a good chance that you're lost. Here's the difference. If you're right, there's nothing I can do about it. In fact, God chose me to be this hard-hearted. God chose me to be this reprobate. And unless something changes in the future, this is what God chose and destined for me. There's nothing I can do about it. If I'm right, you may be lost right now, but that can change because Jesus 
did die for you. Because Jesus did shed his blood for you. Because God so loved not just the world, but you. So much that he gave his only son to die for your sins. So that if you would accept his gift and gracious offering, you could have eternal life. Which one of those messages sounds like good news of the gospel? I think the one that accords with what scripture says. God's love is not limited. He doesn't force us to take it, to benefit from it. But God loves us all. And he wants every single one of us to be with him forever.